Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 117. So glad you could join me. Um, I don't know if you hear in the background, but if you do, I'm sorry. Our neighbor is building an addition to his house so he can have more, uh, more, um, more guests. It's one of those, um, what's it called? Where they, the B Airbnb. They want to have more Airbnb space. And so it's dark out now, but they're still hammering in the background. So if you hear hammering in the background, I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do about it. Hopefully, when it gets completely dark, he's not using a flashlight or something and, and continuing to finish his roof. Uh, but this is Rattlecast number 117. And um, our guest today is uh, Clemence Hurd. He'll be with us in about 15 minutes. Before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you love poetry too, so please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed on whatever platform you're watching this. And uh, that's how things spread around the internet, and that's what we want to do. So please click something now to help us out in that regard. Now, um, we're going to call up today's poet. It's an interesting poem that we published today. This is the first time. I like to, to mix things up a little bit as much as possible and, and have just the, the most, you know, the widest range of possibilities available for what we can do with Poets Respond. And this is the first time we've ever published a translation. And not only is it a translation, it's a translation of a poem that's almost 2,000 years old. And uh, it's a poem that made news this week when Elon Musk tweeted it and, and made the whole world wonder why. And uh, let's uh, call up uh, Yumin He and uh, talk to her about her translation. Hey, this is Tim with Rattle. You are live on the Rattlecast. Uh, so glad you could join us, Yumin. Hi, Tim. Um, good so, evening. Yeah, good evening. Uh, it was great to share mm-hmm. this poem. Um, do you want to explain a little bit about... Um, about the poem's background. So so the story for for people who haven't seen the poem yet is that um, Elon Musk tweeted this poem um, with a sort of a cryptic message. He had, he had the word humanity above it with a hashtag, I think, and then the uh, original Chinese. Um, do you want to explain a little bit about what this poem is and, and, and what it means and, and why, it's a, uh, why you wanted to translate it? Uh, the poem was written by Cao Zi, uh, a poet who lived during the Three Kingdoms period of China. So that's somewhat like from AD 220 to 280. And Cao Zi, he reportedly said that the words, they said those words aloud to settle a dispute with his brother Cao Pi. Uh, Cao Pi back then, he was already on the throne. Uh, he was feel like jealousy of his brother Cao Zi's talent. So he told his brother, if you cannot compose a poem about uh, friend, uh, about the relationship between brothers uh, within seven steps walking, then I'm going to kill you. Uh, but the brother did it. So that's uh, allegedly, uh, that's how the poem came into being. But it was recorded into a book uh, much later. And it has been... Uh, a very popular poem uh, in China, and also uh, children study the poem when they were in school. To basically, it's teaching them to get along with each other. So it's allegorical in a lot of ways. There, I translated it because uh, I saw uh, the news about Elon Musk, and I also saw a lot of people. Uh, you know, some people write pastiche. You know, uh, both in Chinese and in English for various situations. You know, it's like a very 
variations of this poem. So there's a lot of engagements, and it's very fun. And also, there's also a lot of speculation about why Elon Musk did it because he did it in such a way he he doesn't read Chinese then how he understands the meaning of the poem, and why he put the title humanities there. So there are some speculations. Uh, because of the post he did afterwards, that he might be, uh, you know, sharing his uh, opinion about the Dogecoin and Shiba Inu, uh, the two kind of cryptocurrencies. They were in kind of in fight with each other, and he was also not happy with the United Nations World Food Program uh, asking for donation. Uh, I, I think he 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 may be related to these two kind of events, but it doesn't matter what uh, the reason. I just feel this is a very good poem, which is long-lasting appear, and this is the right moment to know about it. That's why I translate it. Yeah, it is, and the interesting thing. So when when Elon tweeted it, all the you know all of his fans were trying to figure out what it meant, and so they were typing the poem into Google Translate and coming up with all these translations, which were just not poetic <laughs> at all. And when I read your translation, um, it, it is, it's, it's a beautiful poem in the way that you wrote it. And I looked up other translations that were available too, and they don't seem to have the poetry included. I mean, it, it's those kind of like literal translations, but there's no, I couldn't find a translation anywhere that, that captured sort of the, the rhythm and the meter um, or in the rhyme in the same way that your poem does. And and in in the image, I mean, it's just a, it's a really good translation. I think is there has this poem been translated often? Uh, thank you so much for the good words. There are a lot of translations there, but I don't think I have seen a translation that is more like the official translation that kind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have been doing a lot of translations, especially the classical Chinese poetry, the Book of Songs. So I'm very familiar with the four line. Uh, five character poems or uh, eight line poems, those type of poetical forms. They were very traditional, were frequently used uh, poetry form in China and also the rhyme scheme. So I was trying to uh, make the English version and the Chinese version resonate with each other in sound. So when you read it, you know, you feel the cadence, the same kind of cadence there. And it's uh, pretty difficult because uh, English language works very differently from the Chinese language, how to uh, make the words, you know, matching in a certain way there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, do you want to go ahead and read it? Um, and, and if you could, in both the Chinese and in the, uh, in the English, too. Okay. I will read the Chinese first, then I'll read the English. Chi不思,主豆然豆奇,豆在 uh, 祖宗七本是同根生相间和太极。Quatrum of seven steps. Cooking beans over a stock fire. Beans are weeping in a boiler. Beans and stalks form one root. Why should we care each other? Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. It's just a beautiful translation of a really, really powerful short poem. Um, and in China, this is a poem that that school children are, are frequently taught, right? It's a very common part of the curriculum. Right, right. It's a, it's like the, when they were in primary school, they they are taught this poem because it's just about how to get along with each other, being, uh, you know, between siblings and between kids, you know. Yeah, and it's a beautiful poem. It's a short. It's easy to remember too. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, well, it's a beautiful poem. I'm so glad we have we could have a beautiful translation to go along with it. So thanks so much for doing this for us, uh, Yuman. Thank you, Kim. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. thanks. Have a great night. Listen to you. Bye. Bye. Yeah, thanks to the readers, too. Bye. Yeah, thank you. Bye. <laughs> Yes, there was a human he with a translation of quatrain of seven steps. And that was one thing I was wondering. I didn't know where the seven steps came from. Um, so the story about the duel helps illuminate the poem, too. And uh, let's go to a, um, we have about five minutes till we're going to move over to Clement's Herd. And let's go back in time a little bit. This is a poem by Molly Fisk, which was from November, November 5th, 2018. And uh, this, is, this is Molly's note on the poem. The violence uh, has been increasing for years, but the New York City bike path car attack and the shootings outside Denver this week pushed me over the edge. I live in a small mountain town, but I can feel slaughter coming toward me. And it fascinates me to watch how humans fend off the truth, not me, not me, which I don't think we can help but do. Even as we're also trying to say, yes, it's me, it's us, we're in this together. What the heck do we do? I really don't know anymore or anyone who shops at Walmart, but the line was meant to be ironic, uh, American upper middle class, clueless, white, etc., to continue the privilege and isolationism of the first lines for effect. And that was her note. There was these shootings in Walmart at Denver, in, in Denver uh, back in, here we go, this is a police capture suspect in deadly Walmart shooting in Colorado. And that was the headline from, um, from November 2nd, 2017. And this was um, Molly Fisk's poem, uh, Violence Fractal. I'm going to have Molly play it for you right now. Violence Fractal. First, it's locations you've never heard of, then faraway places you haven't been, then countries you've traveled to, but not that city and not in a long time. Slowly, a tulip unfurling red petals. It's Paris, Rio, Toronto, and Florida, where your grandmother lived, and you flew for a visit age 12. Frogs on the window screen croaking all night. Las Vegas is just one state over. So far, no one you know, but now it's people your friends can name, a daughter's schoolmate's psychologist mother. This week, a bike path a Walmart in Denver, where Ellen still lives, and your favorite niece. But no one we know shops at Walmart, do they? Soon, though, it's only a question of numbers and luck. It will be someone you liked but lost touch with, a boyfriend, a roommate, then someone you love, and then you. And that was Molly Fisk with Violence Fractal. And um, now we're going to go to our main guest for today. I'm going to call up Clemence, and uh, we'll take a quick break, and I will be back in just a moment. back. Thanks for your patience. Uh, as I mentioned, this week's guest is Clemence Hurd. Uh, Clemence was born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana. He is the winner of the 2020 Aningo Robert Dana Prize, selected by Major Jackson. 
His poetry collects in Tragic City, which investigates the events of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, is, is available now from Eninga Press. Um, Hurd's work has appeared or is forthcoming in Obsidian, the Missouri Review, um, a whole bunch of other magazines, including uh, issue number 72 of Rattle. I'm um, here in a BFA in graphic communications from Northwestern State University and an MFA in creative writing from Oklahoma State. Um, Heard was a recipient of the 2018-2019 er, Tulsa Artist Fellowship and was the 2019-2020 Ronald Wallace Poetry Fellow at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, he currently lives in San Antonio, Texas, and serves as the uh, Sala Diaz Artist-in-Residence, but right now he's in Tulsa, and uh, here he is, Clemence Heard. Hey, Clemence, how you doing? Hey, Tim. I'm, I'm well. Good to see you. Yeah, it's great to see you. Uh, just a, a wonderful book. Do you want to start us out with a poem? Yeah, yeah. I'll start off with a poem titled Neighbors. It's on page 19. Okay. And... I'll just say this is one of the first poems I wrote moving to Oklahoma when I was living in Stillwater, Oklahoma, which I'll be returning to tomorrow for a reading. Here we go. Neighbors. How long did it take to paint the flag on the garage's back wall is not what I asked myself or my sweetheart backing out of the driveway, heading back to where we just turned looking for a place to stay. We were greeted by a lawn of trucks and cars, hot wheels that had grown and grayed, and the Confederate mural for us to marvel. It couldn't have been that difficult, seeing as the design is rather simple. A diadem X of 13 stars, an intersection of dreams, and the red that surrounds it. The red texts, the red trucks, the red necks, the red rust pointing to the odd of it all. A single man could have pulled it off, could have brushed or rather slathered paint from canister to wall. But two stories means family. So I picture a wife drafting the Southern Cross and kids filling in the stars. Oh, say, can you see an open garage aerating the latex exhaust? Neighbors walking their children, pointing past the ropes, shovels, ladders, saws. Racism takes teamwork, takes the anointment of all springs. I can almost see their gawking once the wall was finished. The man kissing his wife's temple, both with one arm around each other and the other around their kids. That day... My sweetheart and I agreed the mounds of the Midwest were no place we want to live. I guess the image could have existed in the house before they got to town. A backdrop whistling, welcome niggers, they'd failed to take down. And that was Neighbors from uh, Tragic City, Colon's newest book. Um, I want to talk about a lot about the book, but let's let's start out just talking about your background and, and how you came to become a poet. Um, do you remember like the first poem you wrote or like what drew you to poetry in the first place? Yeah, I can remember the first poem. I, the first poem I remember was in, I want to say, ninth grade. It was for a girl <laughs> and she didn't like me at all. And my teacher asked me in class if I could read it because my teacher enjoyed the poem so much, and I read it, and the girl who was in that class was like beating her head against the desk as I read the poem. 
And so that's the first affirmation that I received and the first time I remember writing a poem. So what was it? What was it about, you know, that process of writing the poem and sharing it that that drew you to it and made you want to keep going? That didn't come until because I stopped writing. That didn't come until undergrad. That came when a friend asked me to write for an open mic that he was doing. He was hustling, uh-huh. and he was like, "Yeah, man, I got this thing going at this bar, and you know, looking for poets. Do you can you write? Do you write?" And I said, "I, I think I, I can remember how to write, you know." But it was, I think, like most poets or most writers, we just we want to communicate, we want to be heard, and so that was a place where people listen. People listen to me, which I wasn't used to in my home when I was younger, mm-hmm. and so to have a space where people were listening, you know. Yeah, just kept going. Yeah, that, that's interesting. So, um, so, so you didn't have much, um, you know, poetry, you know, growing up. It wasn't something that you were participated in at all, or even or reading. Did you did you read a lot of novels and things like that? My mom would try to shove stuff in my in my face. Uh, I, I loved comic books when I was younger, and she she would buy them, so I would read them. But I would just I just wanted them for the pictures. But no, I, I joke about this now, but um, I failed English in high oh, school. Really? <laughs> and so I joke about it now. But, you know, back then, I just I wasn't interested. I was, wasn't interested in what was being taught in the classrooms. And I had I think I had at least at least two, no, even three, three excellent English teachers. But still in all, it's just I know I wasn't interested in, in that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's so interesting that it, that it sort of sparked later. Um, so about this book, um, you know, it's about the Tulsa race massacre. And it, it's it's an incident in American history, which is well known now, but only all of a sudden, um, you know, for the, for the longest time, it was just hidden and, and people didn't even talk about it. I was looking up the uh, Wikipedia page about it. And they mentioned that like in those, you know, like on this day in history in the Tulsa newspaper, they never mentioned it until... Uh, really recently, and even in the um, in the um, what is it the the firemen's like hundred year anniversary thing for the for the Tulsa police thing, you know it was a, it was a I mean the whole town the whole uh, the whole uh, Greenwood burned down, and, and they didn't even mention it in the um, in the you know history of the fire department there. So it's mm-hmm. something that like and I hadn't learned you know maybe like ten years ago or so it started to get on the radar of people, but before that. It was just this, this like, you know, silent history that no one ever talked about or shared. Um, how, when did you learn about it? And was it, because I know you grew up in uh, New Orleans. Was that something that brought you to Tulsa? Did you want to write about this or did you find out about it afterward? When did, when did you learn about this and, and, and when did you decide to start writing about it? Yeah, I appreciate that question so much, Tim. I learned about it. I was in school at Oklahoma State. I was getting you know, my my master's in creative writing, and I ended up getting a fellowship in Tulsa. And so I said, okay, well, I know I'll move there. And so I want to say I, I learned about it either right before I moved or right after I moved. But I have, I have two friends, or well, one's living in now, living in Tulsa now, and they showed me the ropes. They told me about the history because I was when I was living in Tulsa, I was living on one of the battlegrounds of the massacre. I just didn't know it. Mm-hmm. The fellowship didn't inform us that, you know, where we were. And so to answer your question, if I wanted to write about it, no. I had another manuscript just from grad school that was done and I was sending out and it was getting rejected left and right. And I'm glad now, you know, I'm glad it, it was getting rejected. But no, I had no intention on writing about the massacre. I probably had maybe three poems that I had written that were one about you know, no matter of fact, they weren't even about the massacre. They were just about Oklahoma, and 
And then, you know, later on, I, I decided when, once I found myself in it, because I was living in Tulsa, once I found myself in the poems, that's that was when I decided. But that was, you know, that was after or right before I was right before I, I left Tulsa in late 2019. So, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the one thing I love, there's a long um, a preface or forward or whatever you call it that you wrote about standing on your balcony for that fellowship, you know, right above the scene where a lot of this, these things happened. Um, and it really, I love that introduction. Um, do, do you want to just maybe for people who might not be familiar with it, do you want to describe what happened and you know, just the history of it? Yeah, I could give a, I'll give a short. Um, so really what happened was what was going to happen either way. Um, because with that many affluent black people in, in one district and that many poor white people in the district, it was bound to happen. But they pinned on, they pinned everything on this guy named Dick Rowland, who in an elevator one day bumped into this young woman named Sarah Page. She screamed, he ran out of the elevator. And um, and then they went after him. And then going after him, they a lot of other stuff happened in between. I won't tell the whole story just because this stuff can be looked up. But what I will say is they ended up you know, massacring the people of Greenwood. Um, to this day, I don't know how many people were killed, and and they burned. You know, they burned the majority of Greenwood down. And so, that's the brief history. But like, like I said, like this stuff is all online. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let, let's hear another poem. Uh, what do you want to read next? Well, since we're on it, I think this will give um, this will give more of it since we're talking about like really what happened. So mm-hmm. I'm going to read uh, Genius Annotations Provided You Dropped a Bomb on Me. It's on page four. And this is a poem after the Gap Bands, You Dropped a Bomb on Me, which after I moved to Tulsa and learned of the massacre, that song had a totally different meaning to me. Here we go. Genius Annotations Provided You Dropped a Bomb on Me. If this funk hit isn't reminiscent of the massacre, with its whistling of descent and combustible drum rolls, then the trio's bedazzled camouflage and two-bit bombers gilding the video will surely make witnesses feel like they've marched back in time. Since I told the woman whose hair is a waft of smoke I have a crush on her, it's something I've been trying to define what it means to see an interest one has or still desires from a distance, and what it means to subdue, oppress, gentrify. Sometimes I ask white folks working at gutted warehouses turned bookstores, restaurants, breweries, where they stand. Most of them grin assimilationists. Others squint, race doesn't exist. Rarely do they realize I'm referencing the land. The line, you lit the fuse, I stand accused, may refer to Dick Rowland, a.k.a. Diamond Dick, allegedly running from the elevator and its young white operator like a swift burning wick, a manic flame, like a man escaping a blame not his own. On the way to getaway, my crush and I made out two white women taking pics of a brick shell that was once a business. When she told me I see this all the time on this side of the tracks, I wondered why some find ruination so captivating. It hasn't been five months, but the structure across from my apartment is nearly done. When I told one of my friends it feels like I'm sleeping outside, even on Saturdays, 
He replied, they must be trying to get it up before the Lord descends. You are the first explosion may also refer to a bomb or a mob lighting a house on fire and the corrosion that follows. Many black homes had gas lines. Many black homes caught fire just by sitting beside or behind one another. The one time my crush who drives a carriage and I dance was in a riot, but in unsynchronized bopping and spinning. We could see the pastime stadium from where we clung. It's lit green field vast enough to house over 10,000 tenants. A constructive way to reimagine an afterthought is to name it spontaneity. Something planned or unplanned that to the privilege sounds like a good idea. Similar to Crush, I'm digging this from the rubble, along with, of course, the town favorite, reconciliation. To be turned on is to be aroused. To be turned on is to be activated. To be turned on is to be attacked. Likewise, to be turned out is to be whipped. To be turned out is to be banished. And a turnout signifies who showed up for fanfare and who for warfare. When the women whose skin tags resemble bits of ash or charcoal told me she had reservations about our relationship, I tromped to the tracks, bindle sack in hand, ready to go. I waited for her far off figure or a train to jump, but neither showed. Even if they don't claim one another, we all know envy and invasion are cousins. To say the raids had no relation to Black Tulsa's affluent community is like saying oil cannot be set ablaze, like saying there were no families that shared the same graves. The ah, 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 and ah, 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 won't forget it, wobbled by a woman of mystery, is meant to simulate the pain of repeatedly burning oneself, the sight of the leech-like blister when it swells, and the scar neither time nor suppression can efface. I'm now wise enough to know sentiments conveyed prematurely can trigger a type of pain. When I hear post-racial country, my instinct is to hiss or suck air through my teeth. When I think of the warmth I divulged, I shake my skull in disbelief of its stake. Yet another Juneteenth dampened by sprinklers of fireworks, of raucous ruckus of rockets launched from the baseball field where blacks were driven out. I'm not sure what's more traumatic, the echoes of gunfire or the blood-tinted clouds. The caesura between bomb on me and baby always gets me. Separator of action and actor, comma not a come on, but an accent to the tender tension of making your feelings known to the person who's done you wrong, but also loved you right. Sarah Page, the white elevator operator, is said to have screamed after Roland stepped on her toe, or after he tripped into her, or after a quarrel. The latter may point to the potential romantic affair unanimously rejected by the shaft, carriage, and rope. Though bridges are historically used to bring together, like train tracks, they are also dividers. I knew once I started north from my enamorada 
I had become an outsider. I knew that once I hiked under the overpass, there was no coming back. On warm nights, I can hear the tank car shriek past like a woman who's lost everything. The tankards of L pedaled down Archer Street and the prayers of passers-by. When I can't fall asleep, I kneel at my window, wait for the plain-dressed mobs to arrive. After the massacre, city ordinances prohibited blacks from rebuilding their homes. They spent months in tents the color of bandages covering too substantial of a wound, a wound still refusing to heal, a wound nearly a century has failed to air out. And that was uh, Genius Annotations provided You Dropped a Bomb on Me uh, from Tragic City. Um, and so so what is the, um, like you mentioned in the first poem, that Confederate flag when you first moved to the area. Uh, what is the, the awareness now of it? You know, over these last, you know, 10 years, it seems like it must have increased. Um, and, I, and I think I read that Oklahoma is making it mandatory to be taught in the schools now, too. Is there more of a sense of um, that people know what's going on? And, and is there any kind of like, um, I don't know, any kind of like attempts at atonement or, or anything going on to, to sort of heal the wounds at all? There are attempts. Yeah, definitely. Uh, what I'll say about the Confederate flag is that was in that was in Stillwater. Oh. And um, and so but in Tulsa, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I just saw them unveil this this monumental archer and MLK. Um, which is the boundary. It's one of the boundaries of where black businesses were at the time, where Greenwood, you know, was, was cut off. The residential areas stopped the block before that. But they, you know, they have a monument that's, that's being, you know, put up now. What I'll say is, my opinion, if, is it like, and I think I share this with many people, is it proper atonement? I don't believe so. Um, I haven't, I haven't seen, you know, the mayor or I haven't seen them reaching to give reparations to the, the three known survivors, you know, that are, that are still here. So, um, no, I don't think it's proper to tell me. I think there's a lot more that needs to be done, but I also think that so much of the area has already been claimed. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so much of, because it is, I mean, the, it, it's the acre and massacre, right? It's, it's just, you know, it's all, all of it was a land grab, you know, all of it was transformed afterwards. So, I don't think there's proper atonement, but there are things being done. Yeah. yeah. yeah the one thing I didn't know um, that I'd read just, just now today is that um, there are actually at least reports, I don't know if it's confirmed, that people were flying airplanes over and dropping bombs, actually. And that's why, the, you know, if you look at the pictures, and I, I encourage everybody to do so just on Wikipedia or whatever, it looks like like Hiroshima or something. I mean, there's mm-hmm. there's like, you know, just the stumps of trees and chimneys. I mean, it, it looks it looks like a disaster area. It's not just um, just a massacre, but it's it's a it's like a war that went on that, that evicted people from from that land. And um yeah, yeah, it's just it's just shocking, and it, it seems like all about you know all the things that we talk about today with um, you know the the institutionalization of racism and, and all the wealth that, that was destroyed on that day, which would have been um, accumulating over the hundred years since. You know, like how many yeah. how many wealthy black families would there be in that area if they were left to prosper? And then that and then the fact that that happened. Um, you know, not just in Tulsa, but in so many different cities and, in you know, cities in Arkansas and in Louisiana and in Florida, there, there are similar events that happened. Uh, so it's, it's just a huge event in the history. And it's at least 
good to air it out and let people know about it and, and hopefully do something to uh, to correct all that injustice. Yeah, you, I mean, you you got it, Tim, and and that is the thing, right? That is the question of like where where would Greenwood be if Greenwood still existed? Because right now Greenwood is is considered North Tulsa. You know, there's one block of Greenwood, and there's some some things happening around that block. But yeah, what with the like with the Stratford Hotel, would that be as big as the Marriott? You know, like would that be as big as the Marriott or the Hyatt or the Hilton or whatever? And so, you know, those are questions that you know, we'll, we'll just we'll just theorize. We'll say, yeah, we believe it. They would be, and even if they didn't, like it would still be here. You know, those those structures would still be here. But what you're saying about the planes are totally accurate, and those, those planes end up in they're in the Gap Band's video, that music video for "You Dropped the Bomb on Me." Mm-hmm. You know, they're you know you have these like I don't know what they're called, like two bit kind of <laughs> videos. You know, those you know those old graphics, and it's just flying over and. Yeah, I mean, which is why when I saw the video, I was like, oh, okay, this has to be about the massacre. But, you know, Charlie Wilson confirmed maybe a few months ago, he said, no, I didn't write that song, you know, about the massacre. He knew about it, but it, mm-hmm. he didn't write it. And my thing is, like, I was, like, kind of smacking my lips. <laughs> like, maybe he didn't. Maybe he didn't have that intention. Yeah. But if, if you know the story, if that's already in you, then, you know, I'm thinking, like, you know, unconsciously he is. Yeah. You know, well, it's stuff. amazing always what comes out of the subconscious anyway. Like that's kind of what art is, is pulling out things that you know, but you don't know, you know, or you, you're they're on the surface of your awareness. And so, mm-hmm. so knowing those details and then th- that's just the beautiful thing about creativity is that they come out in ways that you don't expect at all, which is what I just love about what we do with poems. Um, if anybody great. has any questions for Clonts, um, let me know in the chat windows on Facebook or Twitter, and I will pass them. Or not Facebook or Twitter, Facebook or YouTube. Um, don't ask me anything on Twitter because I can't watch too many screens at once. But, uh, but Facebook or YouTube, ask a question. I will pass it along. Um, l- let's hear another poem. Yeah, well, we, we were just talking about the plane, so we'll stay there. And I'll go to a poem on page 78 titled, Pesticide is to Chigger as Turpentine is to, and then there are nine blanks. Or you can read it as one blank. All right, here we go. As kids, he said, me and my brothers waved flags at the edge of fields to guide our father's crop dusting. We couldn't hear for the propeller and squinted whenever the pesticides missed our surrender. Disgusting, right? We were insane. We were podunk country bumpkins filled with a pride white as rice stubborn as the brink of grain. Our mother was bright enough to stay inside, to cook what we raised, harvested, and eventually herded for slaughter. The toxins burned when they fell on our skin and burned when water doused our spires. The worst part was rinsing the fire from our hides. Mine felt like it glowed in the dark. Yeah, another powerful poem that was uh, Pesticide is to Chigger as Turpentine is to Blank. And um, I, I want to talk a little about your writing style because it, there's a very like collage kind of feel to this book. I don't know if you always do that or if it's something you deploy just based on the subject matter. But there's a way that um, like you move through different scenes and different speakers and there's sort of this like blurring of lines between who is saying what and, and through time and space. There's sort of this like like fading in and out of scenes effect or something. And um, is that something that you always do in your poems, or is this something that you deployed on purpose for this book in, in particular? I'm interested if you give me an example, because that's new to me, Tim. 
just like poem poem to poem it feels like we we move back um you know back in time and we see through the eyes of people that were you know things that were taking mm-hmm. place then and things mm-hmm. that were taking place now, and there are these movements within the poems between stanzas. I, I don't know if I could pull up an example, but but a lot of the poems have those kind of kind of movements, mm-hmm. and and there's yeah. a way that there's like a freedom of just. I feel like a lot of movement in the poems. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah. So is is that is that something that 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 you do intentionally, like all the time, or is that something that comes out in revision? Like, do you have longer poems that you splice together like this? Like, how do, how do you, does your writing process work? Now I can answer that one. Okay. <laughs> what 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 I can say about that that is conscious, um, in terms of I am trying to move. I'm trying to fold time is what I'm really trying to do. And and it's specific with this book, specifically with the massacre because my whole the whole time I was writing this book when I first began it was just I was kind of retelling history, and I read some books poetry, some prose, where it was just a retelling. And I'm so much more interested in imagination. And I'm interested in like, well, what if we, how do we fill in these gaps? And so my thing was like, well, maybe we can try to bridge that we could try to like, you know, create this bridge of time. And then so maybe I I think that's as close as I can get in terms of answering like the different voices or, you know, I am trying to move, you know, from one, from one time to the next. And mainly because it's, all this stuff is still going on. The same, you know, the same type of, you know, the same people who were downtrodden then, the same, you know, it, it's still happening now here in Tulsa. And so I wanted to kind of have that parallel of like, yeah, I mean, it's time has passed, but, you know, not much has, has changed for the better, for the better of Greenwood. Let's say that for the better of Greenwood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and did you sort of imagine yourself in like back in time? You know, is, is that part of the, your process for writing? Was that like, like walking through the streets of Tulsa now, were you thinking of yourself being there in 1921? I imagine that when I looked out of my window and that's the only instance I can, I can think of right now. I'm sure, you know, reading those books, I was putting myself there, like reading all the books that I read, all the research and listening to the testimonies. But what I can think about now is, like I said, my window was facing the Frisco Railroad tracks where one of the worst battles took place. And so one of the most violent battles took place. And so that was a time where, yeah, I mean, I was imagining myself mainly because, you know, I could project myself, you know, straight out of my window onto the onto the tracks. But, yeah. So so, um, so so what is your writing process like? Like, how do you if you sit down and you say, I want to write a poem, um, how does that poem come about? Do you have any kind of like regular process to it or is it different every time? Um, some, most of the time it's sound. Most of the times I hear sounds. Um, but my, what I'll say is however it begins, it, it usually begins with trying to fill a gap with this book specifically. I'm trying to fill a gap. It has to be something that's, you know, that feels new, something that feels new. If it's a sound, if it's some strong sounds starting with that, I'm just trying to thread those sounds throughout the entire piece. But my writing process is usually, writing in one huff i just want to get it all down and i'm writing as fast as i can i'm not trying to control anything on that first go and then you know so the draft and then the revisionist comes in the room and you know gets to work starts you know (laughs) it starts to do the starts to do the work i think there are a few poems that are different i think that one poem i I think i'll read later the parasofu poem well i I did i wrote that poem and it was like 2500 words and then it I just it shrunk into a sonnet because I said, well, I just I'm just going to take these song titles. I was trying to honor, um, I was trying to honor Hell Singer, Hell Cornbread Singer, who's a, a pretty famous saxophone player who moved to, who moved to France years and years ago. But um, 
yeah, I mean, he was he was huge. And at the time when I was first writing it, he was still alive. He passed away last year at 100. And um, but yeah, I mean, most poems, I, I call it uh, spin writing. I'm just trying to kind of like spin bikes. Right. I'm just trying to like stay on. I'm just trying to go, go, go. And so and really right past an ending, you know, and, and I think I learned that from Yusuf Komayaka him saying like you know poets usually write past the most provocative moment in a poem and so him saying he edits from the bottom up mm, yeah. and so that's usually like what i'm trying to get to i don't want to know what the ending is i just want to know what the beginning is and go through yeah yeah that's almost the only uh when we re- revise submissions for you know for people we say we'll publish this but you got to cut the last stanza there or the last two yeah. or whatever the, the real ending is here is you know probably yeah. at least several several poems in each issue have that because we do tend to do that um, yeah. the, the one thing I was thinking though is a thing about your process. Um, and I, I saw that you're a cook too, and a lo- you have a lot of food type based poems. And I was wondering if yeah. there are like some kind of parallel metaphor there with cooking, you know, cause when you're, it's almost like you're, you are like, you know, making a finished product gradually step by step as you're writing a poem and like adding the right ingredients at the right time is kind of important too. Do, mm-hmm. do you think of it like that? And do you think like your cooking has anything to do with writing poetry? Yeah, I think so. And I just recently thought of this, Tim. That, I mean, you're asking all the questions I want to answer. Uh, you could talk about food all day, and, I, and I'm on board. But yeah, I mean, I thought about how I was talking about this earlier. How the jobs I've had cooking, I cooked for about seven years in the restaurant industry, and every job was you learn the menu, right? And then you, and then eventually you memorize the menu, and you're good, right? You can move. And so the same thing is with poetry for me is where okay, I just need to learn the forms. I need to learn the techniques. I need to learn all of this stuff. I need to have it by heart. That way when I'm writing and I see, oh, this poem wants to be a villanelle, it wants to be a sonnet, whatever the case may be, I can just keep writing. I don't have to stop and look back and say, what's a sonnet? What's a villanelle? And so I think cooking in that way and the the, the urgency is, is really the thing that I go for. Like if I can, there has to be urgency in cooking because we have to get it out at a certain time. And the moment you you feel like you have to think about something, it's the moment where you get behind. It's the moment where something's going to be late. And so I think about poems in the same way of like, let me just have that urgency. Let me just know what my tools are and let me just use it. And when I am doing that, you know, it usually comes out to be at least a good practice because that's how I look at every poem. At least it's a good practice. I may not revise it even, but like just a draft, just being like, okay, you know, I discovered something, you know, and maybe I'll go back to it. But yeah, so cooking and and poetry, they definitely pull from one another. Yeah, the other thing I was just, I only just thought of this as you were talking, but it's also when you're cooking, it's usually to give to someone else, you know, Mm -hmm. you're cooking for your family, you're cooking for a friend who's coming over for dinner or whatever, or you're cooking for a patron at, at the restaurant too. And so there's this act of like writing and making this creation and then giving it to somebody else. Is that something that you think about as you're writing a poem too, about like who you're going to be giving this, this insight to, or is it, is it mo- more just the, the process that you're focused on? Mm, that's a good question. I'm thinking about, uh, I mean, yeah, I think about the public when I'm, when I'm writing, but you know, there's poems like the um, raw hide, which is dedicated to, to my friend hide. And so yeah, there are certain things that make that poem public. There are certain allusions like to Frank, you know, you see Frank Ocean, he's a well-known figure. And so that's automatically a type of entrance. And so I'm thinking like, yeah, the audience could be in on that. But a lot of the other stuff, it's just between me and him. You know, that's that's a much more personal poem. But I think that there are enough things that are um, that are known. You know, there, there are enough allusions where it's like, OK, I'm not too far off and everything else. It's like, well, y'all can just feel you can feel the energy of it. You know, mm-hmm. you can feel, you know, the, the love, the affection in it. And so, yeah. 
Um, so there's a, a timely question based on the, the conversation here. Um, Morgan Mayer Jokimson says, um, uh, there are many different forms in the book. How do you think about different forms for different poems? When you choose to use form, what the work is, um, what the work is that you see form doing. So, so you just brought up the different kind of forms that are, that you deploy, but, um, but how do you, how do you choose and, and how do you, um, you know, how, how do they work? Like why a certain form for a certain poem? Yeah. Yeah. Why a certain form? That's a great question. Thank you, Morgan. Mayor Jockamson is the name. Hey, Faye. Hey, Faye. Thank you for the question. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, with, you know, with a sonnet, again, we talk about like effect, affection again. I think, you know, if I'm writing a sonnet, I, there's usually some form of affection that's, that's happening there. Um, but in terms of what I want the poem to do, let's say there is the, um, let me think about like the, the villanelle being a form of obsession. I love the villanelle. And so if I'm writing about something that is I'm obsessing about or that I, a subject that I feel is obsessive, that fits the villanelle, right? And I think like I, there's a Sestina in the book for a friend. And so I think about Sestina as being, well, I said this before on something else where I was talking about the Sestina as being so many opportunities to be courageous with the same words, right? Or, or you can just flip them however, however you want. And so... But I see the Sestina as a lot of freedom. You have just so much room. It's so big as, as opposed to being frightening because it's all that room. It's more so of like, how much furniture can I put, <laughs> you know, in here? And so that's what I that's what I, I think about with form. It's just it just depends on it, on the form. But a lot of times it depends on when I start to type because I, I write longhand when I start to type what's coming out. And then that first three lines or first four lines will usually tell me like it'll usually say, hey, you know, because I'm usually fitting the form. I don't. I don't always write form in the beginning. That Villanelle was was definitely a form, which I'll I'll also read if we have enough time. But um, yeah, that's a great question. Thanks, Faye. Yeah, why don't we uh, read another poem? Okay, I'll write. I'll read that poem, and okay. um, and then maybe I'll have time for maybe another short one. So this is on page sixty-one, and this is Tulsa searches for sass graves, and that sass is a typo that CNN did on one of their, uh, you know, um, on something that they, one of their reportings of, of the, the mass graves and trying to keep up with that. And which that's already been, that's a whole nother story. Y'all can look yeah. that one up too. I have to admit as an editor, I read that and I said, Oh shoot, I hope that's not a typo. And I checked the table of contents to make sure it was intentional because I would have felt bad for you. So I'm glad. Yeah, yeah, I would have, I would have, I felt bad for CNN. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. Well, well, they're just, I don't know, anyway. It, it gave me the poem, so. All right. Tulsa searches for sass graves is the headline, but when you click your tongue, a dog will come running from behind the tombstone labeled Dick, but not the Dick you're not thinking or willing to bring you to a page where mum's the head word, though when you lick your thumb, there is no page to flick over, only the head of a bongo drum behind the tombstone labeled Double Decker, which is huge when you realize just how much cheese you can fit on a Ouija board or rum to the head. But link up with your click and you'll see you have help in the deck of tarot that appears as soon as you slump behind the hewn stone shaped like a dock where there lies only goose shit and a duck whose quack mirrors the cackle of a chum and the headline you dared not to click who isn't beneath the tombstone labeled dick. 
And that was uh, that was uh, Tulsa searches for Sass Graves uh, from Tragic City. And uh, other thing we, I, I wanted to bring up before is you have this thing which I don't see very often, um, where you you already mentioned it in the interview with the massacre and acre, the acre that's in the massacre. And um, and you do that with a lot of words. Um, I'm trying to think of like some other examples, but like, um, but throughout the book, there are a lot of those things where oh, and then you read as you're reading the poem, there's just thought like oh, I didn't notice. I never in my entire life noticed that that word was inside that word. You put a slash through so you can see both words at the same time, and and that feels like it relates to this way that the book is sort of collages or something. It's like there's like mm-hmm. something beneath the surface of everything that we're not acknowledging maybe, and then we we're, we're acknowledging it now through the book. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that that technique and, and how you came up with it and, and why um, and, and what you're what you're thinking as you do that? Yeah, thank you. So that that's not my technique. That's Ether's Night. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's all. That's all Ether's Night. And so I, I just I, I took it and, and really I so the um, genius annotations provided that poem is a Pecha Kucha, which is a poem a form that's adopted. Um, from uh, presentations by Terrence Hayes. And I wrote a second Pecha Kucha, which was after their poem Outstanding. And I was really just, it wasn't even a Pecha Kucha. It was supposed to be 15 stanzas. And it was supposed to correlate to the to when you add up Genius Annotations Provided and then you add um, Outstanding, they were supposed to you know, be 35 and represent the 35 blocks that were burned in Greenwood. And so my whole thing was like numerology and I, you know, but um, it just didn't work. Like I, I wrote probably like 60 stanzas and it just, you know, maybe five were good. And I said, you know what, I'm just not going to do it. But in that poem is when I started to, is when I can remember messing with the word massacre, mass acre, mass acre. And I had that thing going I think there are a few other poems. I think Neighbors, it appears, and I think uh, Reflections on Reflections of Elisitsky, that it appears, and maybe The Light Bulb Room, the Ralph Ellison poem, it appears. But I was, yeah, I mean, it's like I can't help myself, but I can't help but see that stuff, and I'm always looking for as many meanings as possible. And so in Reflections on Reflections of Elisitsky, someone recently mentioned that, oh, that poem, you're doing line breaks, but you're not but it's an, a prose poem with the slashes. And I, and he was the first person to say, I was like, yeah, you know, and I was like, yeah, that's exactly what's going on. And no one else has said that yet, but I'm just trying to get like what a line break. I'm just trying to get as many meanings there as possible, specifically if the meanings make sense to the poem. If they don't, then don't, you know, forget the slash. But if they do, then it's like, okay, that's what I want to exist because that's what's happening. And, you know, in Tulsa, it's like, how do we unearth this stuff? You know, yeah. because so much of it has been buried. Yeah, and and that's um the the title too is sort of similar like that because it's Tragic City, and Tulsa's uh, one of its nicknames I guess is Magic City, and so in my mind as I look at the book I almost see like Magic City dissolving into Tragic City, like if you could write like a motion cover, it would almost be like that, you know. Um, so here's a really good question from Anita Larrick. Uh, she asks, "How do you control your natural reaction in order to create a poem rather than a political diatribe?" And that's a big issue these days because it feels like just in the last 10 or maybe 15, probably 10 years, it used to be like we, we didn't really touch politics much in poetry. Um, you know, it was rare when you got a political poem. And when I started the Poet Response series that we do, one of the reasons is that at the time, I guess it was only eight years ago, I thought, hey, poetry should be participating in politics. You know, slam poetry did forever. Mm-hmm. But yeah. but literary journals and, and literary presses d- didn't really have a whole lot of um, overtly political poems. 
And, um, and it was sort of almost frowned upon. And now there's just this proliferation of, of politics within poetry. But there's that, that problem that Anita mentions here, where it becomes um, just like a polemic for a certain position and not like a creation of art. You know what I mean? Um, so how do, you, how do you resist that? You know, because I think, um, who was I? I was talking to Troy Jollymore, I think. And um, he, he, he says he didn't like it. And this, this was like 10 years ago, but he said he didn't like political poems because it was just saying, um, you know, our values are good values. And don't you agree with me? It's basically what political poems are, are often saying. And, um, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a trap to avoid, you know, because if you want to do both the work of creativity and the work of making change, you have to like make it transformative in some way. So how do you how do you approach all that? I have so many opinions on that. <laughs> what what I'll say is I think, you know, overtly political poems, they have they have their place. And I I respect anyone who can write an, an overtly political poem and it just it lands. Because that's then the challenge. Like it's you know, don't write it, you know, and it's like you like you were saying, slam poetry, and you know, all that stuff comes from, you know, the black arts movement and, you know, um yeah, I mean, looking at Amir Baraka, um, who is somebody who I'm thinking about and, and yeah, but that I don't know, like, but if you listen to Amir Baraka, you, you know, you read, you know, Somebody Blew Up America, like, you, mm-hmm. if you read that stuff, it's good work, and and it's good because, you know, not because it's, like, it's not because he's showing you so many facets, right, but it's good because he's just such an excellent writer, whereas I, I, I am, like, my personality is more so of, yeah, I see, you know, yeah, this is wrong, but I'm, then I'm also trying to see, like, well, what's on this other side? You know, what is on this other side? Um, kind of like a benefit of the doubt, you know, in a way. But I can still say, like, I can, I can still say, like, no, I can critique it and I can say, nah, this is wrong. But I could also, like, dig a little bit deeper into it and try to figure some of that wrongness out. And I think that's, you know, that's just what I try to do in, in my life. Because when I'm writing, I'm not thinking about that stuff. I'm just writing. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of what comes out is just, you know, it's just our personalities coming out. And so, you know, it's kind of like, the, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg, you know, and it's kind of like, well, whatever's in our personality, whatever's in us is going to come out. And that's not to say that some of the poems I've written, I'm like, yes, it's all right. And even where I am now, like I'm looking back and I'm like, yeah, me six months ago, me a year ago, I'm not agreeing with it. But, you know, that's why we have revision. And so mm-hmm. that's what I'm just going to keep doing. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I lost track of how many poems we've done so far, but let's do another poem to make sure that we do a good number of them. All right, let's, yeah, we can, I'm going to do a short one because I, I felt like, uh, you know, G, the genius annotation provided poem, it, it stretches, you know, it's, it takes up the whole couch. So I'll do this poem, which is just a, it's really a list of all, of, of a whole bunch of songs Hell Cornbread Singer did. So I'll do this in honor of him since there's a series of poems honoring the survivors or then survivors of the Tulsa Massacre. So this is titled Paris Soul Food. On what page? And this is page 92. Beef stew, neck bones, jungle juice, good to me. I thought about you, fancy pants, blue stomping Kansas City. For all we know, there is no greater love. Dear one, hey Jude, I'm still with you. The boys, Lena, one for Willie, Nancy with the laughing face, Malcolm X, brother, I'm with you on the trail with a song in my heart. Sing a song, blues for hell, solitude, hometown. I can't get started. 
you don't move me. Fa, 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 fa. I can't explain my love to you. You don't know what love is. I have no more trust in justice. It's a great list poem that is a Paris soul food uh, after hail cornbread. And uh, um, there's one thing I wanted to ask about just the, because you came from a, you know, open mics and things like that and the, the performance aspect, and then you, you've sort of moved to writing for the page more, I guess you could say, um, or I don't even know if that's true, but, but you're putting out books. Um, how does, how do you negotiate between the two? Like if, if you started out like writing to try to like connect with an audience, how is that different from connecting with a reader on the page? And do you do anything differently to, to change the way that you approach a poem because of it? That's a good question. Patricia Smith would uh, be trying to fight right now because <laughs> she does not believe in there's a difference between the page and this, the stage and the page. And even though I would say like she is, she's the first poet that I've seen, you know, that I was following, and I saw like, oh, okay, she's doing both. Um, Tayemba Jess was talking about that not that long ago. So what I'll say is, I think the moment. So yeah, I mean, I think we can't see lines, right? So when we're <laughs> when someone's on the stage, we can't see the lines. But since that's the first way that I'm I'm writing, it becomes like. The stage and page fuse whenever I read it out loud. So that's when I, um, I'm thinking about, you know, what is it going to sound like? You know, I heard um, Francine J. Harris talk about this on, on one of the podcasts. And she was saying, you know, yeah, like it's just, you know, I know it's done, even though it's messy or it's whatever, because I, I like to read it. I like how it sounds whenever I read it. And that's what I think, you know, spoken word and, and slam, like you have to... If you don't like to read it, especially if you're doing slam, you won't memorize it. Like I, I learned that the few times I did slam, it was just like I can memorize it if I if I really enjoy it. That's how I, I I'll know. It. And if I don't, then <laughs> it's just gonna slip. I'm gonna get up there and I'm gonna be that guy that's just like, and I'll say a few more <laughs> words and just walk off knowing that I forgot the last minute and a half. So yeah, I think as soon as I read the lines, that's when it you know it's like okay, I know it's ready for both. Mm-hmm. Did you do a lot of slam? Did you did you perform in, in competitions and things? Uh, a little bit. So yeah, after after undergrad, I went. I moved to Baton Rouge, and there's this group called Eclectic Truth where they they're ferocious. They just they're in it. <laughs> like you go there, and you you better come with your A game because they they're they're just coming every week with it. And so but it was my place. I never won a slam. Let me just say that. <laughs> I think the closest I came, I may have gotten second place and that was debatable. But you know, when I was doing that, uh it was my my challenge was I don't know I'm no I'm not gonna beat these people. Like they were just too nice. I was like, I don't have it. Like I don't have that whatever it takes. Like I just and if I do have it, I hadn't found it and I didn't give myself the time to find it. But my thing was like if I could just write a new poem and try to memorize a new poem every week, which I didn't, you know, I wasn't able to do that, but I did, I was trying to write and memorize every week. And so I just kind of took it as a challenge. And that's what I see. One of the best things about slam is like, if you want to see some writers that are sharp and they're really pushing themselves, go to the slam, mm-hmm. you know, if they and, and some writers will say the same poem every week, especially if they're just trying to win it. Like, I know this is hot, but then there are the writers who are like, no, I'm trying to test my pen. I'm trying to get better. And so, yeah, I did slam for a little bit. And then after a while I was like, okay, but I think I want to do something else. So I want to learn how to do this page, you know, because my line breaks were wiggity whack. And so I had to, you know, I had to. 
So is there, what would you say that you learned from that experience uh, that you can translate into the, you know, the page when it's, you know, somebody that you're not performing it for? Um, are there any, any insights that that gave you into the, into the writing? Uh, let me think about insights. I don't know about insights. Maybe I would say, I would say that I was more interested in, I was more interested in subtlety. Mm-hmm. And so I like to, I don't know. I just, there was something about the page where it was like, I could be a little bit more subtle here. I could do some things that I just can't show on the stage and you and that only people will see like the slashes, right? There are just certain things that you'll only see on the page. And, um, but in terms of what I, what I took away from slam, it, it was really a competitive nature, but mostly with myself, you know, it was like, because I knew I couldn't, <laughs> I, I knew zero skip more Desiree, like Donnie, like Donnie Rose. I knew I wasn't beating him. I was like, I'm not even, <laughs> I'm not even going to even try to, to, to get there because it's just not my personality. Like I, you know, even just my entire, you know, just being seen up there, I won't say that I'm as nervous as I used to be, but the page I'm definitely braver and uh-huh. so it, it did teach me a type of bravery it taught me how to hit the page differently and then all of the poets there you know they taught me whether it was through them performing or it was just talking to them afterwards all of them are teachers and I think some of the best teachers I've met you know have been in slams mm-hmm. would you say you learn more there than in um you know in the MFA kind of stuff I learned differently. I just, you know, it's, I want to say I learned more there. I would say that it was just a different type of learning. You know, academia is, <laughs> it's, it's tough, you know, and yeah. I think the only way I was able to do grad school was the fact that I, I just wanted to learn how to write so badly. And, you know, the, the woman I was dating at the time was like, you write way too much. You need to go to grad school. She was <laughs> like, you got to go. Um, and she was in grad school. And so she pushed me, she pushed me there. And, um, yeah, so I won't say I learned more in either space. I'll say that they just taught me different things, and I was just I was fortunate enough to be in you know to be on both sides and be able to say let's figure out how to fuse them. And mm-hmm. I think for the most part, most poems that I at least published, I, I've done that. You know, some not so much, but for the most part. Do you have any interest in, in teaching? I, I, you don't teach now, do you? I do. I do. Oh, I just do. started, oh, and, okay. I, and I, I taught in you know grad school. I, I taught before grad school. I was teaching when I worked for Apple. I was an instructor there and so I've been teaching for a while I'm teaching at Western Colorado University right mm-hmm. now and I'll start at Oklahoma City University in, in January uh, mentoring and so I have an interest in teaching a very small group uh-huh. <laughs> just because it's it's really hard to give every a whole bunch of students you know everything that they need and grad school it's an investment you know it's an investment of, of so much time and even now I'm like I, I wish I could do more <laughs> you know I, I understand uh, the poet Diana Coy Wynn, who says, you know, she writes twice a year. She writes in like 15 days in the summer, 15 days, you know, during winter break because she won't, she just, she obsesses over her students. And I get it, you know, I get it. And I'm like, that is kind of what it takes, you know, or that, or that is what it takes. And I just, my thing is like, you know, give me three or four students and just let me, you know, <laughs> that's, that's it. I'll be all right with that. So, so what I was wondering is if you have any interest in, in pursuing academia, like having a full-time, you know, professorship somewhere, is that something you'd like to do or, or would you rather not? I mean, I would like to be, um, I would be a trash man if the, if the job was right. You know, it's just like, wh- how is it set up? You know, because academia looks different in so many different spaces mm-hmm. at Western Colorado University, the, the new director is, is just, he's just bringing the, he's bringing the program back from the dead. Literally he is. And he's allowing us to create our own classes and we have 
almost complete creative freedom. And so that's a program where it's like, oh, I can design my own stuff. I don't have to adhere to what we think academia should be. Mm-hmm. Cool. I can do that. And so, yeah, if it's a job like that, you know, definitely I'm interested. But if not, if it's just like you have to abide by these rules, that's a hard space for me. I went to a Montessori school, Tim. You oh, know, yeah. like we just we mm-hmm. like to float. We like to just move when we want to move. And so it's hard for me to, you know. Yeah, that's another thing I want to ask about was your your drawing and graphic design. Um, do you do you use that um, in the service of poetry at all? Like, do you think about like graphic novels or graphic poetry or anything like that? I'm thinking about Diana Corwin again and what she did with those photographs and Ghost of. I haven't done it to an extent like that. I mean, there are some poems where you can kind of see a little bit of the graphics coming out. You can see like my obsession over line length, and some you can see. There's a poem that looks like railroad tracks to a board from abroad. You know, there's a poem that looks like stairs, um, steps to nowhere. And so you can see a little bit of that stuff. I, I love typography. Um, but in terms of merging them both, I haven't found like that way to do it. There are some mm-hmm. new poems that are doing something similar to that. Uh, but it's rare that they fuse. I think the last thing that I've done was, yeah, it just... It was it was a newer poem, but like, yeah, they haven't made their way all the way in, and and maybe they won't, you know, because mm-hmm. I am more interested in just what the words are doing than like how they how they're looking, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it just seems like like Tragic City could could make a a like a graphic novel type, you know. I've I've seen a few books like that where it's it's poetry turned into like comic book form, so you get that mm. the wider audience too. And mm, I was wondering if you ever ever thought of that. Like it, it, it seems like it's very. I mean, there's so much visual going on in these poems. It seems like it'd be a good fit, almost. This is new for me, Tim. You give me all kind of ideas. I'm about to go <laughs> into academia on the, on the stronger suit, and I'm about to. <laughs> what I can say is the the poem that I was most interested in the poems were the refinery poems. Those were the poems I was most interested in, and they just look like blocks, right? They just look like buildings, but really they're the refinery was the name of the building of the fellowship that I that I was in, and. If you look at you know Google Maps, you'll see that's the exact shape of the building. And so looking at that and thinking about starting a poem the same way as you ended, and so that it's just like maze, but then it's like you, you this is trapped. You're trapped inside of this space. That was more of like me thinking about the image and what the image can do with the words. But I don't know. You're giving me all kind of ideas, and I should have been taking notes for some of the earlier stuff is what I'll say. Well, it'll all be on uh, iTunes later or whatever. Yep. But uh um, the other thing you mentioned that you already had a book um, manuscript ready when you started um, when you moved. To, I think you said when you moved to Tulsa, or, or when you started this book, at least. So, so do you have another manuscript, and, and what's that about? If, if so, yeah, <laughs> it was a normal, like average, like hey, this is the first book about family and mm-hmm. feelings. A very, a very intimate book. I think one of the more recent books that did a good job at that in terms. It was like a father-son relationship type thing is um, Edgar Kuhn's uh, ta- book, Tap Out. That book is, you know, is doing it. Uh, but it was it was that type of book. You know, it was that type of book. It was talking about masculinity and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it was, and, you know, it was like, I thought it was a good manuscript. You know, my advisory board was like, yeah, send it out to all the big places. And it got shut down. Uh, you know, it was just like, nope. And which I'm grateful for. But I probably, I'd just been writing. So I, I don't start putting the book together until it's like, I've written, and I know I've written two manuscripts now, so I need to, eventually, once I revise all of that stuff, I'll go back in and see if I have something. But I also know there's a historical component I want for that first book that it wasn't there before, mm-hmm. and so it won't be finished until I at least get into that. But, yeah, it was... Yeah. 
So, so, uh, so is there a, a theme that you're working on now? Like after Tragic City, is there something else that, that it's sort of, you know, you're obsessing with and, and thinking about a lot and writing about? Yeah. Yeah. Two things I'll say, I found out that both of my great grandfathers, uh, two of my great grandfathers are, uh, they were longshoremen in new Orleans. And so they were the, you know, the guys taking all the shipment, the crates and stuff off of the ships before it was all automated. And so I, I was thinking around, like, oh, what does that look like? Um, did they know each other? So I'm imagining a lot of stuff. So thinking about that and, and also thinking about uh, some of the, you know, still, like, working through some of the trauma and that, that, that I, you know, one, went through, but also witnessed while I was in, while I was in Tulsa. And just trying to get to a, healthy, a healthier, you know, um, just a a better version of myself and so that's the hard part now is that i'm used to writing a poem and being transformed by the poem mm -hmm. but now it's more so i have to transform myself and then write the poem <laughs> and so it's a harder book it's a more intimate mm -hmm. you know it's more intimate poems but that's you know that's what i want to do i want to i want that that intimacy because tragic city is some of that's there but it is more so you know talking about and others it's talking about you know someone not me Right. It's, it's talking about a, a place that's not mine. And so my thing is, I, I, one of the books have to be me, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, the bulk of them, at mm -hmm. least. What, what do you say that, that growing up in New Orleans was something that that's a big part of you? Like it like because, it, you know, it, it's interesting that you, you grew up in New Orleans and in Louisiana in, in general and then moved to Tulsa and wrote a book about Tulsa. Is there like a book about New Orleans? Is, is that something that was really formative for you? Um, you know, between the food and the music, it already kind of sounds like it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, New Orleans is everywhere I go. Yeah, it's it's everywhere I go. What I can say is, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of poems about about New Orleans. I'm constantly trying to claw my way back, you mm -hmm. know, like to my accent, which I which I've definitely lost some of, and I'm always trying to like I'm trying I'm not always, but I'm trying to get back to that space. I'm trying to get back to those spaces. I'm trying to get back because. Even just, I mean, grad school and then writing this book, it, I was separate. You know, I separated myself from friends, from family, um, from New Orleans, and so I am trying to, I am trying to get back now, and um, that's as far as I can go because I lost my train of thought, Tim. So that's where we're at. <laughs> well, that's right. We're, we're just about out of time, so let's close out with uh, one last poem, anyway. Okay. Okay. I guess as I'm in Tulsa. I'll do this. Since I passed it today, I passed up uh, Oral Roberts University today. So Oral Roberts, the televangelist, who actually started his, um, yeah, he started his time as a, as a, you know, as a evangelist. He started that time in Tulsa, right outside of what was this place called Beano Hall, which was the the Klan Hall uh, in wow. Tulsa before it was knocked down. He started his tent revivals right outside the, their doors. Oh wow, I didn't know that. So this is, go ahead. Uh, what page is that? I was going to say. Uh, this is page 33. Okay. Okay. All right. World's largest praying hands. And this is no punctuation, so I'm going to read it just like that. For God to hear your prayers, he needs to see your hands together like a mosquito's gazebo carrying your blood, like a message and massage after acupuncture to another mediator buzzing in the ear of both pastor and El Pastor, who says he has seen the 640-foot Jesus 
heard the word of the Lord before delivering what he scribbled and erased from the margins of the same verse everyone has heard before. While his wife sleeps, her hands clasped between her clasped thighs because she hasn't been touched by oral ever, other than the tongue spoken by the ordained. The forehead nudge that sent her backward in convulsion of the pulpit in front of the whole congregation, busting the snake on the carpeted altar where the true believers shame the naysayers catching the ghost, the most divine sign of the times and ties to offering basket passed over by the pastor. 10% all the church and school needs 10 persons to give whatever the pastor and training puts on your heart. A small tax for the absolution of your sins, for your single friends who found love and die neighbor, sitting in the pew next to them, the iron gates ticking open once the code five six four six three one six is tight, and the reverend enters by his lonely, his rectangular spectacles readying the first sermon on the second Sunday at the third Pentecostal Methodist Methodical Methuselah Televangelist Church. Great poem. Take a breath. <laughs> this is the uh, world's largest praying hands. Uh, great poem. Uh, great conversation. Thanks so much for being a guest today, Clem. It's, it's been great talking to you. Um, and, and a wonderful book. I hope everybody picks up a copy. Thanks for sharing w- it with us tonight. Thank you, Tim. I appreciate you. Yeah, have a good night. You too. So that was uh, Clemence Heard, and uh, his newest book is Tragic City, which um, I didn't put the... Let me put the... Uh, the cover on the screen here, so you can see it. There it is. Uh, that is Tragic City, uh, Clemence Hurd's newest book, and uh, you can pick it up. It was the winner of the um, Aninga Press Award, the uh, Aninga Robert Dana Prize for Poetry. And, um, oops, hang on a second. Okay, there it is. Yeah, Tragic City. And um, you can find more of uh, Clem's work at his website, ClemenceHerd.com. That's C-L-E-M-O-N-C-E-H-E-A-R-D.com. ClemenceHerd.com. So uh, we're going to go to open lines now. We'll be right back in just a moment. Now, how the open lines work, I'll tell you before we go. Um, email your poem uh, to right now to open mic. That's open M-I-C at rattle.com. Uh, just email it there so we have it and can show it on the screen like we were showing Clem's poems. And then call in, choose one or the other. You can either call in over Skype, and the Skype ID is Rattle Poetry, all one word. Just say hello um, on the chat message, and I'll call you back when it's your turn within about an hour. If you'd like to call by phone, the number is 818-850-7727. Just call, let it ring a few times, and hang up, and I will call you back when it's your turn. That's how you get on the call list. So I'm going to stand up and stretch, refresh my drink, get everything organized, and I will be right back in just a moment with uh, tonight's open lines. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Um, now, I always have to log back in to open mic. It signs me out once a week exactly during the show. But I logged back in. I remembered the password. So we're good to go there. Now, this week's prompt was um, our first repeat prompt that we've ever done. Um, this prompt was to um, um, use randomstreetview.com. So randomstreetview.com is a site that randomly generates photographs of streets all over the world. The prompt was to find a photo that speaks to you and write a poem about it that was your prompt for today and this is um this was my my random street view i didn't i didn't choose the first one i chose like the fifth or seventh maybe one that i that i came across and this was my uh 
um, my photo. And this is a you can kind of see maybe I should have cropped a little a little larger but this car is um oh wait here maybe this helps Get the, yeah there that is, a, that is in, in Seoul uh Seoul South Korea somewhere and a um a BMW here is trapped and I can't get out and uh here you go so this is the poem that this uh, street view image uh, from randomstreetview.com generated Trapped in soul. After swearing, after squatting at the curb into the nylon swish of your new blue tracksuit and measuring the millimeters in your mind, after standing and glaring into the glare of the windows of the restaurants across the street, at the wavy reflections of the cars in rows like teeth, after rocking in yours, forward and reverse, throwing the wheel clockwise, then counter like a sailor in a gale, like its sets of reps on the latest exercise machine, after the woman passing set her brown bag on the sidewalk and guided you with her hands, gentle gestures of her fingers like a spell, magic spell of extraction, after kissing the minivan, the soft smear of your paint like lipstick on its bumper, after smiling at the woman, it's okay, it's okay, but thanks, you finally found an empty bench in the shade of a tree, in a park you never noticed, and the book you've been meaning to read still there on your phone. You've given up on the day and your plans as they were, like the author has given up on this poem, and maybe it's better that way. So there is the, uh, that is my poem. And you can see in the photo, I imagined that this guy is, is the driver. I'm not sure if it is, of course, but, uh, but that was my, my, um, what I was going with. And, uh, this is Megan's poem. Um, so Megan says, my poem is based on an unnamed road, um, County Westmeath, Ireland. And you have, this is a uh, Megan's screenshot of her random street view. You have a, um, an old rundown cottage, a stone, the roof falling apart, covered in weeds, for those listening. And uh, this is Megan's, Megan's poem, Unnamed House. Before the mouth that used to be a door exhaled trees, before the roof lost skin and muscle and became ribcage, someone made tea in what was a kitchen, maybe one cup, steam rising like the memory of conversation, or maybe two, two faces at what was a window and is now only a socket without an eye. Someone held back the bushes that lean in like nosy neighbors, and someone else said thank you and kissed them. And nobody saw it, not even the gossiping weeds. Maybe whoever lived here died and was buried, and now they are doing what the dead do when nobody's looking. Here the earth is shameless, with a gall to boast about what it claims. And it swallows everything that remains, even the ghosts. So that was Megan's poem. And once again, there's the photo of the cottage on unnamed road, County Westmeath, Ireland. So we'll see what you have. If you'd like to share anything, you can share, um, you can share um, poetry spawn poems about current events. You can share prompt poems about randomstreetview.com. You can share um, um, recently published poems that you're proud of. So anything you'd like to share, feel free to uh to share and we have a couple let's see what do we have we have um eh, carl church we actually don't have that many today so i think what i'm going to say to start with already if you have two poems and you want to share feel free um we have uh, richard westheimer carla schwartz we have philip stern um, patrice wilson and anivadita karthik um, who i think asked me to read then over on um on our 
inbox we have a few, so I might end up reading more than we, we talk to people, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes, but let's call up, um, usually we end up calling Carla last. Let's call Carla Schwartz first this time. Hi, let me just, uh, <laughs> I think I can just take these headphones off and I won't hear you, so. Perfect, uh, yeah. You know, can you hear me now? I can, yeah, thanks. Oh, thanks I do. oh there, is a, there is feedback. Hang on a second. Okay. Hang on a second. We, we're going to, we're going to do that okay i think we should be good now right okay. yeah yeah we're good so yeah. uh, so what do you have to share with us today okay so i do um i went to the random place mm-hmm. and um 13 ferraro street south 2091 johannesburg south africa and did you um if you put up my poem you can actually click that link and show it i do yeah here we have the poem right here okay. or, or the, the street okay view. great yeah Right, right, right. The street view, and this, and then so I put the address, and then the rest of the title is Serenity. Ah. And uh, okay, here we go. Okay. The garages we keep so clean, you can sit down on the floor. Never has a car rested there. Rather, our car, our plug-in, parks on the patio before the front door. Hence, the canopy, white as the brightest day, a large umbrella to shade house and car. Sometimes we sit out there in the shade, watching squirrels chase up the mango tree. Our gate, electronic, wired from beneath the clay bricks, set in a circle our message to the sun. A mile away, dogs run wild around sheet metal shacks. A young boy starts a fire. Behind our doors, we fold our legs and ohm. That's an interesting poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Carla. So that's the reason why it's so interesting to do these street view poems is you end up imagining being there. And, um, and again, I'll show the picture on screen once again. This is the, the house we're talking about. But it's so fascinating to think about that, that that's, that's an actual house that somebody lives in and has no idea that, um, that you wrote a poem about their house this week. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. I know. And um, that, that carport umbrella thing, I actually went through the neighborhood, you know, on the Google thing and saw that many of the houses in this particular street have this cardboard kind of thing. Most of them didn't have their umbrella up, that there was a frame. It looked like every house had this brick wall and then the frame, and then you could get into it. That's interesting. I don't know. I mean, it's pretty uh, you know low latitude, or I guess you'd say high southern latitude. Uh, so I don't know about the sun. Like we have a lot of those here because we're uh, a thousand feet up and, and, you know, pretty far south. So the sun is mm. brutal. And so maybe it's bad mm. there too. And that's what it's for. But that, that's cool to see. Um, it, it's right. always, I just love the street views and seeing, you know, what, what the world is like. So many, I think I went to through seven or so at first because so many of them are just like woods or like a grass field, you know? <laughs> right, right. I had that experience as well and um and you know and some things speak to you and some don't I you know and it's I actually went to a Korean restaurant tonight called Bowl Kitchen by oh, the really? way and and uh, so I your Korean 
uh, scene, soul scene, really uh, spoke to me as well. That was very cool. Very cool. Well, thanks so, so much for sharing it and writing that, Carla. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Good night. You too. Good night. Now let's go to Richard Westheimer, another another poet that we tend to put toward the back of the show the last couple times. Hey, Richard, how you doing tonight? Hey, Tim, I'm doing great. Uh, that was quick. There, there wasn't thirty seconds. I got to hear the end of Carla's call. Oh, so. really? Yeah, maybe there. Maybe um, are you watching on Facebook or YouTube? YouTube. Okay. Yeah, I wonder which. I don't know. I don't know which has better delay or not. I don't know. Or maybe someone upgraded something. Who knows? Yeah, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> So, uh, terrific interview tonight. I've, yeah, I've been looking forward to this one for a while because because Clem, I mean that poem we published of his in the summer '99 was so good, and then uh, we published two poetry spawn poems too. So um, so so that's good stuff. And I was looking forward to this book. So it's fun to share and, and talk to him. Uh, what do you want to share? Uh, so do we have time for two? Yeah, we do. I, there aren't that many people um, asking uh, on right now. So uh, yeah. well, I'll I'll do my poets respond poem first, which was I try a white nationalist. Would be unsubmittable. Okay, yeah, let me pull that up. Um, and, and so while I do that, um, what was it about? Like, do you want to explain the, the context? Um, yes, yeah, so there's a um, uh, there's a civil trial going on in Charlottesville right now where a, a class of, I think, 19 injured people are suing the organizers of the um, Unite the right, I, I forget what the name of the, oh, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the right, white supremacist rally in Charlottesville that was so brutal and injured so many people and was, it turns out, um, was very well organized amongst a number of luminaries of, of the uh, white supremacist community. Yeah. Is and Richard, uh, Richard Spencer, Spencer, Spencer. Yeah. Is, he's, yeah, a, he's, he's part he, of it? He's one of those. And I, yeah. I, I, I haven't, I've, I've sort of shielded myself from too much of it. I mean, there's mm-hmm. there's just so much to to take in. But um, I did uh, read an article about some of the testimony, which is mostly, as as the judge said, this is not a podcast. This is testimony because <laughs> these people were, you oh, know, wow. ex, ex, you know, were mm-hmm. um, um, articulating their their hatred, and uh, so. I was just imagining what I would do if I were the um, um, prosecuting attorney. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's hear it. I try a white nationalist. If I could cross-examine a white nationalist after he'd proclaimed the greatness of his race, after he'd maintained his hate, after he'd pointed at me and preened himself with chants of, you will not replace us, you will not replace us. I'd ask him about his day, about the mud stuck to his shoe, whether he walked yesterday as I had among the leaves cascaded by that first fall freeze, about how the sun had dappled him through the branches, had made his eyes dance, uncreased his crow's feet and loosened his brow. I'd solicit his testimony about the sight of his shadow long and graceful as the low-slung sun followed him from the woods. I would not object on the grounds of hearsay as he spoke of what the breezes whispered to him through the trees, nor would I move to strike when he lowered his voice to tell of the moments after dark fell, when he felt so alone and cried as I might have on just such a night. I'd let him be for just a moment 
buried in his fears until the judge banged his gavel and told the jury to disregard my line of questioning, whereupon I'd respond, your honor, these questions go to state of mind. I'm trying to find why this man marched armed with his AK, brandished his battle flag, bloodied his car on soft bodies, and lit his torch among a storm of a thousand others, khaki-clad, just like him, and why his face twisted sharp, hardened by the flames, and what happened to him in the shadows that night after the sun had settled behind him, what made him to try to drive that darkness away by setting the world ablaze. I turned to the defendant, now coiled fetal, or was he cocked tight, an unsprung trap ready to snap, or smoldering wildfire primed to ignite? Yeah, excellent poem, and really, really well read too, Richard. They, uh, it, it, you're always a great reader, but the monologue style really brings that out too. And mm. I've been thinking about that a lot since the Ernie, you know, on last week's episode was talking about his uh, his style, and um, and how I read too fast. It was really great, uh, great pacing in your performance of that. Um, I appreciate. It. I've, I've been thinking a lot about poets being a poet and loving one's words, you know, owning yeah. them mm-hmm. and. And 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 I think uh, Clemens talked about it, you know, reading it until he loved it. And that's what I'm that's that's sort of what I've been working on as I've been writing the last couple of weeks is just like reading it, reading them as though I own them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And why if you're you know, why share something if you're not owning it? You know, I mean, there's something to that, too. Yeah. Um, so okay. So let's move on to the the street view prompt. Yeah. This the street view was this on this island uh, south of the Hebrides, but sort of like the northernmost tip of the northernmost islands of, of England. Um, and uh, I don't I don't know if uh, I, I posted the picture at the top of my. Yeah, I have it up for everybody. Right. But these low slung buildings and and. Um, I don't know, but it immediately went to this poem. Um, uh, 23 weeks. I've run this road a hundred times, seen the low slung shed, its red doors slid, slid shut against the winds out here. Today, it lay open and beckoned me, insisted I look inside only to find you a thousand times smaller than I imagined you to be. You covered in fine silky hair, and I could not bear to know if this was a womb or a tomb that I peered into, only that it was so dark, so hard to see what I was seeing, so frightening to know that your limbs, frog legs splayed, were too small for your head, too fragile to touch, too much for me to carry home and back here every day. So I moved away, sat on the cold, hard ground, sobbed to a God who could not respond, and considered if I should wait for you here just in case or slide the red door shut. Oh, wow, that's some poem there, Richard. 23 weeks. Um, really imagine the emotion of that um, of that scene from the street view. Yeah. yeah. Good stuff. Well, we we have a we have a young friend who had a miscarriage at twenty two weeks and just bore a child who there oh really have hopes for at twenty three mm-hmm. weeks. 
Oh, that's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. Just a beautiful poem and, and the, the emotion was all there. Thanks, Richard. Thanks. Thanks, Tim. Talk yep. to you soon. Yep. Bye. Bye. That was Richard Westheimer and um, 23 Weeks was the, the poem. And now let's go to, um, let's go to Patrice Wilson. Hey, Patrice, how are you doing today? I'm good, how are you? I'm doing great, it's great to see you. So what do you have that you'd like to share? Uh, I'd like to share the two short poems about uh, uh, the, what is it, Any Street? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me uh, find, let me find them. Here we go, okay. So we have, um, ah, so, okay, so here's the, um, the street view, and this is uh, Adirondack Northway, uh, right. Lewis, New York, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay, let me put it on the screen. This is the, the street view that Patrice is working with. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, yeah. I just want to say, when I saw that, I, I, got, I grew very quiet inside and in mm-hmm. my mind because it drew back memories of, uh, of uh, trips that... that my family used to take on the road from New Jersey to upstate New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I got very quiet, and then all these other associations came forth. Yeah, uh, you know, it's interesting you said because that's where I grew up in upstate New York, too. And, and it comes back like that. I don't know, the landscape is very iconic of that area. It really is. It is, yeah. yeah. So uh, this first one is called uh, Journey. Journey. Between two well-hewn worlds of mountain rock, a parted Red Sea miracle of our own making, I travel north from New Jersey, signs indicating alpine scenic lookouts, the word alp, meaning a high mountain in English, in another tongue, brave, valiant. Ahead, a view of distant higher peaks, mottled with strong autumn colors. But I seek valleys more than hills, a cleft in between where I long to live, a land flowing with milk and honey, a fresh water river to fish and swim in, a green and thoroughly quiet promised land. It will take a long time. And that was Journey, the first poem. And I, I love that ending. It will take a long time. Great, great turn there. And uh, and the other one's about the same photo? Same photo, yes. Um, and this kind of scared me when I was very young and we were going through these walls of rock. Remembering a mountain road sign, one car, one two-lane highway built through blasted stone. Beware of falling rock. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's funny too, because I, uh, you know, we live up in the mountains, and so we have those uh, those signs and falling rocks all over the place. And I used to be scared of them too, and now it's just second <laughs> nature driving past them because you, you couldn't get out otherwise. Um, but yeah, those are great poems. Thanks for sharing both, Patrice. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoy these Rattlecasts so much. Yeah, well, we enjoy you too. I'm so glad you could share some poems. Thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye. 
That's Patrice Wilson with two uh, based on an Adirondack Road photograph. And uh, let's see. So someone else called. Uh, Nilema just called. So we'll add Nilema to the list. Let's go to Philip Stern next, and then I'll see. Uh, we'll see. Hello. Hey, Philip. How you doing? Tonight? I think I hear myself in the background. So mute. Um, yeah. That's perfect. Thanks. So, um, so what would you like to share tonight, Philip? Okay, this is a poet's respond, and uh, uh, it, the poem was on my burner for a long time, but I couldn't come up with uh, a proper ending till I thought about it again. I trotted it out uh, with this beginning of this Ahmed Arbery mm. case, you know, the three men mm-hmm. pursuing and killing that jogger. Uh, I've been having a little second thoughts now because so many good, so much good stuff. I mean, uh, <laughs> well, your stuff is great too, uh, Phil, so, so don't worry about that. Yeah. Anyway, moral history, you know, you know I'm a, I just don't want it to be a political diatribe in terms of what's been said. <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, much more um, abstract than the, the personal stuff we've been hearing. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, uh, the poem is called Moral History. And, um, of course, it connects the, the history of the world with individual histories, which you have to, with morals. And I use the word binary in a mathematical sense, yes, no, on, off, one, zero. Mm-hmm. And this is this is contrasted with uh, binocular eyesight, three, which is three-dimensional. Okay, moral history. Infants learn there's I and not I. Everyone starts with binary eyes. Children are taught to socialize, to share and temper their binary eyes. But if self be one and others be zero, elders will listen to demagogue hero shouting us, not them, hypnotized by primary binary eyes, forgetting too soon the source of earth's wounds, how pyramids, plantations, Ovens arise, how ghosts in white hoods were deaf to men's cries through cut-out holes burned binary eyes. A mind can combine right and left eye to see a whole human, not a half-lie. No one to hate, no one to blame when other is equal and different are same. That's a very good poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. The Moral History by Philip Stern. I love the the form and the wordplay, as always. And the rhymes work really well. The ovens arise is an especially great line when the, ri- when the rhyme of, from eyes comes through there. Good stuff, Philip. Thanks for sharing that. Thank you for your comments. Yes. And yeah. as always, for allowing, allowing me to share. Yeah, always my pleasure. I just love the open lines. I'm glad you can call in frequently. Thanks a lot, Philip. You're welcome. Bye. Good, good night. Yeah, that was Philip Stern with Moral History, responding to uh, the Ahmad Arbery trial beginning this week with only one black juror. Um, let's see who... Oh, yeah, Nilema just called. Nilema Kirkanis. Let's give her a call. Hey, Nilema, this is Tim with Rattle. You're live on the air. How you doing tonight? Good, how are you? I'm doing great. It's been a great night of poetry so far. Uh, what do you have to share with us? Okay, so I have um, a poem that's going to be published soon. Oh, congratulations. In the, yeah. 
Oh, thank you. <laughs> in the archives, it's called Ar- Archives. It's um, and uh, through the historic Joy Kogawa House. Uh, it's one of a few poems, and it's called Photophobia. Um, and it's about photophobia. <laughs> and so, Which, photophobia. Yeah, would that be fear of pictures, or is that something different? No, it's not a phobia. It's an actual injury to the eyes, but oh, it, really? it shares the name phobia. So I always find that really interesting. Yeah. That it's hmm. um, it's it's an inflammatory condition where your eyes, like your retina, is quite burned, hmm. and it's very painful physically. But yeah, so but it's interesting that it has that name, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it just means. Your your eyes are repelled by the light, so in, it's not the fear; it's the repel, the repellent aspect. Yeah, that, that yeah. makes sense. And this is a so this is an excerpt of a longer poem. Yes, a much longer poem. Interesting. So, how, but how, yeah, this is the first yeah. part. How how long is it? Sorry. How long is the poem? It's like a thousand. The whole poem is a thousand words. I'm not sure. I can. I'm not sure how many words this is, but mm-hmm. it's not. It's like. Maybe 200, I think. Not yeah. even. Yeah. Well, I, I shouldn't hear this. And, and congratulations on uh, having a home for it. But let's go ahead. I'll, I'll put it up and then go ahead and read it. Thank you. Okay. Should I go? Yeah, go ahead. It's, it's up online for everybody. But you have to okay, read your perfect. own copy. Yes. Photophobia. Falling sunsets dipping themselves along the frosted edges of our sharpened hearts. Pens strewn upon the table, you encouraged us to draw. Ka exclude, you and me, pithy android fantasies. We named robots in newly invented words, only whisper to ourselves over morning cups of deepening brown tea with milk and buttery toast. Teapot reflections off of assuming walls, holding sunsets as their only truths. Cycling our horizontal imperfections, dancing leaves of light between us. Whistleblower, letters and files, I closed my burning eyes, seeing clearly through compelling darkness, astigmatic, utopia, myopic, shaping sorrow, out of tip nibs of black pens found anywhere, or at the pharmacy, or at the variety store, or at the depanair. Now, I am the life you can't quite believe in. Now, I laugh at myself as I furrow my brow, tempting my own expectations of what we dreamed for. I don't forget the multiform we constructed out of bricolage, our bodies pleading with us, cells taking, transformation, transmutation, transition, forth and back, provisional. Daily provisions paid for at a register of falsely construed sins. Synergy of an apocalyptic antonym, since Genesis only theorizes the beginning, which will be as difficult and as simple to predict as the ending. Cat's tail looping around spherical timings, peripheral vision, holographic lenses, round stylish sunglasses to bend Solaris with. At eye blink, lashes beating in temporal meters, renewing spectrum, 
Perhaps the days behind cool, dewy, pretending windows were boring with you. Although I never saw it that way. That way, I thought we were enigmatic. Oh, that was very interesting. Thanks so much for sharing that. And, uh, and that's going to be published in um, um, Archive. Can you tell us anything about, about that? Because I'm not familiar with it. So um, let's see. Yeah, sure. So look, I'm, in, I'm in Montreal. And um, the, so the historic Joy Kogawa house is the house, the childhood house of Joy Kogawa, who's a very well-known uh, writer of Japanese descent here. Um, and she wrote the book Obasan. And um, so, yeah, so they teamed up with the archives, which is a queer archive. Um, and they, and yeah, they're going to publish our poetry in tandem as part of a queer Asian workshop series that we did through the summer where we were taught and mentored by a bunch of wonderful writers here in this country. Yeah. So I'm excited. Oh, that's really Pretty cool. exciting. Yeah, yeah. And I'm showing some <laughs> on screen some of these. Uh, this is the house for people to see. Um, yeah. Yeah, this is really they cool. They have literary residencies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really rad. They have, like, literary residencies there. And, like, it's a lot of... It's all mostly contemporary literature. And and Joy Kogawa herself is, like, an amazing, like, figure in, in literature. And she's a beautiful poet as well as fiction writer. Well, that's really yeah. cool. I have to look more into this after the show. Thanks for sharing that. It's great. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it again. Yeah, have a great night. You too. Thanks. Bye. Okay, so let me make sure. I think we, um, that might be, oh, Mike Bales too. Sorry, Mike. Let's call it Mike Bales. Um, I want to make sure I don't miss any people who wanted to call it. And I have a few poems from people who, um, just wanted me to read them, so we'll do that too. But let's call it Mike. Jim, how's it going? Great. How you doing, Mike? Pretty good. Um, this is one of the days where I've had two readings. So this There's is something your... for the Iowa City poets, which is fun. It was that and a live event, I'm or was that, that zooming too? Is Zoom? Um, I can actually do some live readings like a thing called roaring rhetoric it's mostly performance poets but i'm friends of the host so he's there he's very gracious a guy named aubrey ryan who actually probably makes money teaching poetry then uh -huh. yesterday at a writer's groups um sometimes these days are busy exciting where i'm busy with my writing doing different readings and that yeah, sometimes it, it almost like feels it. like i don't have any eat <laughs> well, I'm so, so I'm glad you could find yeah. the time to join us, uh, Mike. So, what do you what do you want to share today? I read I wrote a poem off the street view. Tried to copy it, but I couldn't. Mm -hmm. It's some kind of little line of trees and some rural setting near Budapest, kind of fields, mm -hmm. and it actually reminded me of the times when I, as a flagger, worked in the northern part of Wisconsin, along the woods, uh -huh. and felt the trees kind of talk to me. So this is a pantoum. It's called A Soft Awakening. Oh, very cool. Let's hear it. A veil of trees rises in remnant country land to the touch of a morning sun in the winds of ballad or song. In remnant country land, a dream is awakened in the winds of ballad or song, the moon dying a thousand times. A dream is awakened. As I walk day after day, I notice the moon dying a thousand times a cloud of celestial dust. 
As I walk day after day, I notice a field waiting to take seed, a cloud of celestial dust. The earth dances with the sun and moon. A field waiting to take seed reaches for the breadth of skies where the earth dances with the sun and moon. A veil of tree rises. Oh, that's a very cool poem. I, I love the, the use of the repetition there. Uh, it's really good, especially the, um, like the, uh, when, it, when it weaves in through like that. It's a really great use of the pantoum. Thanks for sharing that, Mike. Thanks. I've won some contests actually using the pantoum form. It's nice to visit forums every now and then. It is, yeah. Our, uh, our Rattle Poetry Prize winner last year was that pantoum. And it's not a form that you see, we see a lot in submissions, but it's, it's really fun when, when we get them. So thanks for sharing that. Okay, thanks for having me. Yep, All have right, a good bye. night. Bye. It was Mike Bales with a soft awakening. And um, let me just remind you, in case anybody's uh, waiting for the last chance to call in, the phone number is 818-850-7727. 818-850-7727. Just let it ring a few times and hang up. I will call you back. Or you could use uh, open mi- or um, Skype to rattle poetry all one word. Just send me a chat message and say hi. And, um, and email your poem, too, to openmicatrattle.com if you haven't yet. Uh, some people um, upset poems that can't read and share them today. So let's take a look at this. This is um, Nivedita Karthik's uh, prompt-based poem. And uh, we have a picture from Nivi here. Let me see if I can zoom in enough that we can get a good view of the picture. This is, um, this is Nivi's poem. And the location is um, Vigvagen. Denmark, and uh, and it's a photo of trees with a sun. It's really actually a beautiful photograph for Street View. That Google uh, that Google car outdid itself this time. And this is uh, Nivedita's poem, um, Komorabi, Komorebi, I think you'd say. Shadows dance on the ground as sunlight filters through the trees, Komorebi. Light filters through minute spaces to reach dark places, Komorebi. Shrouded by canopies of misery, little streaks of light filter through Komarebi of joy. And there is that. And I'm, um, oh, and here, down at the bottom, I didn't see it before. Komarebi is a Japanese expression used to indicate sunlight filtering through the trees. Very cool. So I learned a new word today. And that is like my favorite thing. Like up here, I don't, um, I can't turn on the, um, the nature cam right now because um, it's dark out. But But when it's, the sunset, one of the reasons why I always have trouble with my lighting is I love the windows that are right in front of my um, computer here. I'm right behind you. I'm like talking to you. And, um, and, and the light comes in in the evening through all the pine trees. It's just my favorite thing. So it's, it's the Komarebi that I love. That's so cool. Thanks for sharing that, Nivedita. Once again, it was Nivedita Karthik with uh, Komarebi. And then her other poem um, for the Poetry Spond uh, was about this article. And um, I'm not going to play the video because we learned that there are now people like copy, copyright hunting videos. So, um, so I won't play it, but I'll read the headline here. And this is the, this is the poem. Oh, no, don't play. Okay. <laughs> so um, this is the, the headline. Uh, Meet Shouter and Maddie, skateboarding bulldogs who can't get enough of their wheels. And this is from mirror.co.uk. And a chowder. and I think what it is, to talk about this copyright thing, I think people um, are taking TikTok videos, and this is a TikTok video, and they are offering to buy them, and then they are using copyright um, 
um, t- copyright claims to make money. So it's like a business model I've just noticed that came out. And so I think this probably was um, sold, you know, someone bought it and then sold to the mirror and things like that. Anyway, so Chowder has been a massive hit on TikTok thanks to his skateboarding skills and was sent some new gear to try out. And um, oh, they won't even let me show a preview. Oh, here's a, here's a picture. So there's, uh, there's the dog. Um, he's getting his new skateboard. It's a bulldog. And um, there he is on his skateboard. The 35-inch board is now Chowder's favorite one, and Dad's too. So it's Chowder the Skateboarding Bulldog is uh, Nivy's poem, or Nivy's uh, topic. And this is her is Nivy's poem, Chowder Charlie. Here we go. Chowder Charlie. Are you asking me who I am? Me? Well, let me tell you right away, ma'am. I am what you call a star, you see. I am a star on social media, for I am an influencer beyond compare. Just search the term in the encyclopedia, and you'll see my photo below the word. It's right there. This is because one of the, of one little thing that makes me go wee, and that's my gift my dad gave me, you see. A th- new 35-inch skateboard oh so gently, helping me become the new skateboarding champ, Chowder Charlie. And there's, there's uh, Nivity to Karthik's poem, uh, Chowder Charlie, another fun one. Always fun to see. Fun news stories for a change. Uh, thanks, as always, Nivy. Um, let me see. I'm going to see, um, we'll see if we can call up, uh, Anita Larrick. So Anita mentioned, oh, there she is. Let's see. Hello. Hey, Anita. How you doing? It's great to see the, you. The magic of all these uh, <laughs> vehicles. I'm, I'm just following the, the wave. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm so glad. I think if you want to appear on video, you just have to push your camera button, which is that little icon between the red hang-up and the, and the white mute. There's a little camera box. Uh, oh, yes. Okay. But it looks like, oh. There you go. Wow. Okay, let me just <laughs> resize you. You, got a good, you have a good, uh, a good size setup there. A lot of bandwidth. Is that okay. right? It is, yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, so, so it's great to see you. So where are you calling from? Thank I don't you. know. If you, have you been on before on the I'm phone? From, I, I'm also from Canada. Ah, okay. And I grew up in Montreal, but I've been living in Toronto for an awfully long time. And I know all about these dépanneurs. Oh, that's great. <laughs> they're, they're the lifeblood of, our, of society. You can get everything at a dépanneur. <laughs> that's great. I didn't know that. Um, everything. So, so what did you want to share with us? Well, today I'd like to do the, um, the uh, poet response poem, please. Mm-hmm. And I'd like, and it's um, the one entitled Sleeping with Waves. Okay, I have it. Yep. And, and so, it's based. Yeah. Sorry, and, yeah. and it's ba- basically. Sorry, did you want to say something? To, no, I was going to say like set it up for us so we know what it's about. But yeah. you were about to do it anyway, so I'm just cutting you off. I'm trying not no to. No problem. <laughs> um, yeah, it's 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 kind of indirectly influenced by the recent um, you know environmental um, international um, uh, affair, the COP26. And in in my interest, I, I like to, I'm, I'm very strong on identity issues, and I've tried to weave personal identity with environmental identity. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure how I've succeeded, but it's, it's like a first try. I've broken out of the, the box of just identity. It's, it's a wider thing. It's not a binary thing. Sleeping with waves. If you have not saved your work in the computer's memory, all is lost. A lifetime asks a question, are you saved? And this is my epigraph. 
from uh, a book entitled Aging to Saging, a very wise book mm-hmm. by a rabbi and a New Age, um, um, a, a new age uh, elder by the name of Zalman Shachter Shalomi. In fish time I rest between stretches of pain, eyes open, stomach filled with wastewater, wipes, plastic fibers, failures, 3 a.m., undigestible. At first the flutters, unmarked words, pushed down. I lie still. My belly is a map of twisting biography. Station to station, abandoned. Names pounding, just out of reach. Where am I? Gut splits open to flashes of heroism. My ambition printed on skyscraper waves, defying the gods of wind and blood to stay up. I was a child of poisoned flowers that lay in deep places. I dove down, returned with wounded stones from that hole for souls, overturned by life, screaming darkly in the wreckage. Sorrow of the fall, sorrow of the rise. I clutched the stones through gales, through monster lips exploding into frailty. No turning back. Losing strength, I, not I, lie labeled, unnamed, despised, swallowed. My sea family beats inside me, a sickness, or something else, held together by the prayer of stones. I read the waves, try to save the evidence. This is why I am still here. I diarize the odors in dying air the unflowering of plants, my debilitation. Beat of the hurt, beat of the healing. My mind travels, harvesting the night. Oh, that was excellent. So many great lines in that one, Anita. That was uh, uh, sleeping with waves. Thanks so much for sharing that. You're very welcome. Yeah, I'm glad we could get you on uh, on live. Uh, It's great to see you. (laughs) Yeah, you've heard my voice. You've never seen me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. So hope to see you again soon. Good night. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Ted Guevara has one too. This is Ted's random street view. Oh, look at this. Um, oh, I could not copy and paste the original shot, but I enclosed a pic that comes close. On the original, there's a van parked at the side with all these houses with satellite discs. Um, there are profanities in this poem, but they are in Portuguese. Well, thanks for, for warning us there, Ted. And this is the poem that's similar, or the the picture that's similar to Ted's Street View. I'll put this on screen. So this this photo with a a thousand, well, maybe not a thousand, a hundred maybe, satellite dishes on all the roofs. Looks like, I think, I don't know, I'd say somewhere in the Middle East. And um, here is Ted's poem. Street name. Estra, I guess it would probably be um, Portugal then. Maybe, maybe not, I don't know. Street name, Astra de Mata. Family genes and rivalry are still connected by disc. The man in the van is talking to his wife about tungsten, strong metal, ideal for the physicality of crypto coins, as if the world would still depend on hands-on exchange tomorrow. It's been their talk at the table lately. Their three kids would surely benefit. Now the man is wondering if they're having pre piri piri chicken tonight he's also wondering if her professor pie is well enough to drive she tells him lisbon 
uh, is 100 kilometers away, and adds, don't start. Yeah, yeah, he doubts. The old man-in-law is known for surprises. He can show up proud at the doorstep any time. His jeans are old hat, but they're not kaput and buried. Tungsten would be ideal during his time, Napoleon's time. The man puts his direct TV van in reverse and still wonders if he should risk going home. His appetite for chicken might spoil, let alone his sex drive for his wife. Bloody hell mine, the old man could put his mind to shame. No doubt that Miho, Miho de Formiga, fodder, knows crypto by now. Interesting poem. Thanks for sharing that, Ted. And I was wondering, um, I saw the story um, this week or last week maybe about the, um, the tungsten, the, the solid tungsten balls that are now being traded um, and sold. And, and the company that makes them is going out of stock by people who have tons of money to burn just because they're becoming crypto millionaires. And it's so interesting that it's the, what, the weight of it, because tungsten is like one of the heaviest things you can have, the most dense. And so a little ball feels much heavier than your mind thinks. And there's something about like the weight of that contrasting with um, the ephemeral nature of the cryptocurrency sort of sings, or screams out to be written, have poems written about it. So thanks for doing doing us one there, Ted. It's Ted Guevara with uh, with a street name, Estra de Meta. And uh, here's Vicky Miko's. Uh, Vicky Miko's. I'm not sure if this is a um, a Tonka or not, but let's see. Um, and this is her street view. This looks like. Let me see. This looks like. Um, um, Tolima, Colombia, and it's a. Is that a river or a road? It's hard to tell. I think that's a river. So it's a river, a nature's kind of scene on this street view. And um, here is uh, Vicky's poem, My First Time. My first time trespassing on the Mississippi Riverbank, our indulgence lasting beyond the mosquitoes. Oh, that's great. I love the uh, the last couplet there, our indulgence lasting beyond the mosquitoes. That's great. And that was uh, Vicky Miko's poem for prompt number 117. Okay, I think that is everybody. Oh, wait, Susan Talley. Let's see, how much time do I have? Yeah, well, let's, let's read these last two poems, too. This is Autumn by Susan Talley, who um, I guess can't call in. She often does. Oops. Um, here we go. Autumn. Autumn. Sweep summer, that old postcard, into piled leaves, russet and brisk. No longer green, languid. We fall in step, crunching back to yearly routines. As our autumn poem for the autumn prompt, I think we had an autumn prompt a few weeks ago, an ode to autumn. Uh, thanks so much for sharing uh, that, Susan. Uh, Susan Talley's poem for autumn. And I think one last one, I believe, yeah, one last poem. This is uh, Colette O'Donohue. Might you read this? Oh, no, not Colette. It's uh, Peter the Badger O'Donohue um, using Colette's email address. Um, hey, Tim, might you read this? Thank you. And this is uh, Sepulchre. And here, here's the photo that this poem is about. This is an interesting industrial, some kind of old old factory of some kind. Um, in the in a great lighting, too. If this is a street view, it's not a really good photograph. Very artistic. That, that Google camera um, is quite the artist. Maybe it's getting intelligent over the years. I don't know. But uh, excellent photograph. And here is uh, Peter's poem. Let me just paste it here one second. 
I'll just play it here. Okay. Here's Peter's poem. Sepulcher. I don't, that's one of those words I don't know if I'm saying right. I, I've seen it over and over again, especially in like uh, Anne Rice novels and things, but I never know how to say it. I don't know if I've ever heard it read out loud. Um, sepulcher? Sepulcher? Too big for that, though you held my dread thoughts and dreams, my loved they nibble away at you now, like yellow rats, these hydraulic, beak-toothed, modern-day dinosaurs, hungry for change, even in this forsaken, starved place. How were sanctu- You were sanctuary? Hardly. Cathedral? Definitely. A place I could worship, of decay, dissonance, dystopian reverence. Beauty, like hate, is in the heart of the beholder. Your nighttime silhouette haunted me daily with impec- impecunious desire. I wish I had gone through. I wish I had gone first, though. I wish I didn't have to witness your literal downfall, to hear, to bear witness to that almost bestial screech you gave as another steel girder gave way. There is something, too, of the Scooby-Doo about you, a childish, nightmarish rhyme of an edifice, an artificial blast from the past I never had. Spooky, baby. You were spooky, and I loved you. Oh, that is a cool poem, too. I don't know. Now I'm not sure if that was a spooky, last week's spooky prompt, or if that was a street view, or if it's both combined. But uh, but I love it. I love that uh, there's something, too, two of the Scooby-Doo about you. It's a very fun poem, and then creepy, too. Thanks for sharing that, Peter. Now, I think that's going to be it. So, let me do um, our, our Psyku for the week really quick, and then we will tell you about next week's prompt. So, the Psyku for this week... Um, it's based on this article. Um, this is from Johns Hopkins University. And if you have arachnophobia, speaking of phobias, don't look at the screen right now because this is the uh, a huge spider. The spider's web-making secrets unraveled is the article. And our researchers at Johns Hopkins University discovered precisely how spiders build webs by using night vision and artificial intelligence to track and record every movement of all eight legs as a spider's work in the dark. And uh, and what they did, and you can watch some video here, which again I won't play, but it's interesting if you want to find this, is um, they they hooked up this infrared lights and, and recorded the spiders over and over and over again every night. And the interesting thing that they found is that it was predictable, the movements between different spiders and different species of spiders. So that they knew that it's a, it's a, um, a program that were, they're running, that they, they evolved to, to operate this program and, or to execute, I guess you could say. And, um, and so they could predict where in the spider's web was made just based on how the legs were moving at that time. And it just made me think about about algorithms and how how complicated the world is and how we're really kind of algorithms moving around ourselves. That's what nature is. That's what we all are. We've run these um, these these programs in our minds that, that give us certain reactions to things. And so I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about the metaverse, and that we've been talking about the last few weeks. And I came up with this uh, psyche, and I, I added a photograph too from Unsplash. Uh, um, who is the I can't remember who uh, the photographer was, but um, it's a free stock photo website on Splash. So I grabbed a photo here, and this is my Saiku for this week. At the center of the algorithm, an orb weaver waits. At the center of an algorithm, an orb weaver waits. That is our Saiku for today, and that is the show for today. Now, next week's prompt is going to be write an apology poem. 
It's a pretty easy one. Write a poem. That's an apology. You decide what you want to apologize for or apologize on behalf of someone else. Whatever you'd like to do, write a poem that is an apology. And that is your prompt for this week. Uh, it's been a great show. Thanks, as always, for joining me. Uh, next week's guest is going to be um, Ananda Lima and uh, her newest book, Motherland. I think it's her first book, maybe. But Ananda was in rattle number 57 and uh, happened to be in L.A., so she came out to our poetry reading um, and, and featured there maybe, th- you know, about, I don't know, three years ago. And just a wonderful poet and a wonderful person. She's one of those people that just made me feel good about life after having, uh, having seen her poetry reading. And uh, hopefully I'm looking forward to this book. I'm sure it's going to be very similar. Ananda Lima, that's Rattlecast number 118. The prompt is to write an apology poem. And looking forward to this. So I hope to see you then. Hope you have a great week. And I will talk to you soon. Good night.